The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it, we can listen to it, we can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. The aim of Zen, or any genuine spiritual practice, is not to arrive at some conceptual knowledge of the world as an ends, but to know life directly, experientially, in all its myriad of forms, as well as its essence. This is the only true knowledge, which transcends all concepts, ideas, and opinions. We cannot, we will not, ever experience fulfillment and the true joy of life until we enter the stream, lie down in the stream, and experience all of it as it washes over us, allowing it to take us down the stream and through our personal barriers we have constructed in a lifetime, through the tributaries, and empty us into the great ocean. All the while surrendering our will to direct the path of our journey, ever realizing that the control we humans seem so obsessed in having is only achieved in letting go of control. Jesus said to his students, those who try to secure their life will lose it, but those who lose their life will find it 
and have life fulfilled. Thomas Merton writes, You do not need to know precisely what is happening or exactly where it is all going. What you need is to recognize the possibilities and challenges offered by the present moment and to embrace them with courage, faith, and hope. Here Merton speaks of courage because we are to understand what is often misunderstood, and that is faith or trust is not a guarantee. It is a means which helps us navigate through any lifetime which is always marked by uncertainty. Faith is the means to losing ourself as we presently know ourself in order to realize our true self, what the Zen masters refer to as original face before our parents were born. Likewise, hope, Merton speaks of, is not grounded in some ideal or some better destination in the future, but rather in the fact of this present moment, that fact being that when we truly experience the present moment, we find it is infinite, it is always here and now, and the same is true of the possibilities it offers. What is also true about the present is that it always is challenging us to be still and know God. To be truly present is to detach from the past and the future, lie down in the stream, and experience it directly without any effort to control the direction until we finally lose ourselves entirely in the great ocean. How you doing? Okay. Welcome. Thank you for coming out tonight. I always like to begin with what I call context, because one of the things we rarely consider is that when we read something or when we hear someone talk, there is a particular context, the teacher in particular, is operating from. And any effort on the part of the listener to understand those teachings outside that context is futile. And one of the other problems that is connected with that is that in the West we tend to mistaken information, mere information, as wisdom. Information alone is just that, data that we collect over the period of our lifetime. Wisdom is the information we look at closely, explore, engage, and operate from its appropriate context in order to fully understand it. So whenever a Zen master or a teacher speaks, they are operating from a singular and exclusive context. And that is the context of Zen spirituality, of any authentic spirituality. And I have spent a lifetime, 40-some years now, talking about the difference between authentic spirituality as I see it and have come to know it, and much of what we mistaken as spirituality in the West. Authentic spirituality has to do with Zen spirituality, has to do with 
awakening from a lifetime of ego delusion. So another way of saying that is that tonight is about seeing clearly what possibly one has never seen before or seeing clearly what possibly one needs some clarity about. And so tonight is about transformation. And often we mistaken transformation and change these two words as a kind of doing something differently or as a kind of adding on to our life. Most of us practice spirituality by adding this piece and that piece onto our existing way of living and calling that change and calling that transformation and calling that spirituality. When we look at Webster's definition of change and its synonym transform or transformation, it means that at the moment I engage, for example, tonight's teaching, what will be different at the end of tonight, depending on how I hear it, how I receive it, and how I process it, is that my life will not be the same. Change requires us to literally change our life and change the way we do it. And tonight is about another way, an alternative way of doing it. And we call that way Zen, or we call it spirituality. And again, the singular objective, the exclusive purpose, there is no other purpose, on coming here tonight and listening to this information has to do with awakening from a lifetime of ego delusion. By that we mean from a lifetime of mistaken identity, from a lifetime of investing my heart, my emotions, my thoughts, my energy into purposes that lead us nowhere, and from a lifetime of, again, mistakenly seeing my place in the world from a position for which there is no evidence, for which there is no evidence. Uh, I often talk about, as a young man growing up in my generation, one of the shows on TV had to do with these cops, and every time they would go to a house to uh, detect as detectives, they would say the same thing, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Let's see. See, some of you remember that show. Not all of you, though. Zen is interested in the facts. And we've heard a lot recently about the fact that most, a lot of people who are, we have empowered to govern our lives with don't care about facts. But if you want your life to change, and if you want to make a real difference in the lives of the others and in the world, just the facts, just the facts. So tonight we're going to take a look at just the facts. And by that I mean, what does it mean to truly be spiritual? And how can our understanding of being spiritual help us bring into our own personal lives and into the world a force for nature or a force for change rather than just another idea, another belief, another opinion, and so forth? So on one of my several trips to Japan, on this particular one, I had the pleasure of having a cup of tea with a very elderly professor who was a professor of religion on the campus of Temple University in Tokyo. And on this particular night, which was one of my earlier, very first-time experiences of being in Japan, 
uh, I asked him what religion he was. And he looked at me initially quite odd, as if you know he didn't understand the question. And then a few moments after that, he said, oh, I think I know what you mean. So he told me, he said, in Japan, when the child is born, you call the Shinto priest. When the child wants to be married, you call the Franciscan. When the child dies, you call the Buddhist monk. Uh, as for spirituality, he said, that is an entirely different thing. He said, because as you know, everything is spiritual in Japan. Life is spirituality. Spirituality is about life. And then he ended by saying, but you must know that as a Zen master anyway. Well, don't you? And I said, yeah, but not in the West. And so our conversation went on to talk about the difference between, again, Western ideas of what it means to be spiritual and religious, as opposed to how the culture of Japan lives and practices. And when he said everything is spiritual, it became evident everywhere I went, including the local uh, supermarket, a small Wawa-type looking place, whereby when you purchased items, they not only put them in a bag, but they wrapped them, and they wrapped them in a really special way that you thought you were leaving with a bunch of gifts. They were attentive to details. And there's a saying that some of you might remember, that, you know, the devil's in the details. I also remind people, so is God. And spirituality, again, has to do with intimacy with our life. Intimacy with life. It has to do with a willingness, as my first reading uh, I shared with you this evening talked about laying down in the stream. By the stream we mean the Buddha Dharma stream. Lying down in the stream and experiencing it as it flows over you, washes you, cleanses you, and then lifts you up and carries you toward the great ocean. And another life story I like to talk about is when I was with some friends of mine out in Colorado and we decided to go uh, rafting, whitewater rafting, which is very popular out there. If you've ever been out there, you know that. And at one point, this was my first time, and at one point a bunch of the guys decided to get out of the raft and body uh, surf uh, the, uh, the stream. And I decided to join them, and it was my first time ever trying to do that. And I noticed that they were like just like surfing the ocean. They were just like surfing, going around, getting to where they wanted to go. And I jumped in, and I was hitting trees, I was hitting rocks, I was drowning the whole bit. And one of the guys yelled to me and said, just let go. Don't try to surf, just lay still. And I tried that, and it worked. I found that I ceased hitting rocks. I went around the branches and, and over and got to where they were. We are obsessed with the notion that somehow if we can control the circumstances and situations that show up in our life, that is what, where the power is. But in Zen and any authentic spirituality, whether we're talking about Eastern spirituality or the spirituality of the desert fathers and mothers in Western contemplative schools, there is a similar teaching, and it has to do with letting go. It has to do with losing yourself in the stream. 
and developing or cultivating the ground for what some may call faith, which is a term we also use in Buddhism, or some might call trust. Just And what this does when you are ready and willing to train in it is that you get to find out that there is a fulfillment, a sense of joy, a sense of happiness, a sense of okayness that is not a function of the circumstances and situations in your life. When we are really willing to engage with the teacher, the role of the teacher is to challenge you. The late great Chogyam Trungpa used to say, the role of the teacher is to insult you. you know, and it's the same thing. The role of the teacher is to take you where you don't want to go and to see what you are unwilling to see. And one of the things that, again, most people are unwilling to see is that when you take a look at how most of us live our lives, we live our lives talking about our lives according to the circumstances and situations showing up in our lives. So if certain circumstances, certain situations are present in our life in the moment, we might say about our life, my life is good. And when I ask you, well, what do you mean by that? You will begin to tell me about the circumstances and situations and the things that are currently present in your life. And if circumstances and situations currently in your life are not so good, you will tell me my life's not so good or my life is bad or my life really stinks and so forth. And likewise, if I ask you what you mean by that, you will begin to tell me about those circumstances and situations. My life is good because, my life is bad because. Living your life at the level of circumstances and situations, or what I call living your life out of the content of your life, where the content of your life is the means by which you measure the quality of your life, is not only futile, it's stupid. Because one of those facts, just the facts, about the stuff in your life, the circumstances, the situations, the people, the things, the money, the jobs, all of that stuff which we find ourselves where we are in this nation, as a nation, because we value that stuff as, again, the coordinator for our life. All of that stuff is impermanent. The nature of all things is impermanency. It doesn't last. And this would include my emotions, this would include my feelings, and even my opinions and my thoughts about life. I often point out that when I was about eight years old, I recall explaining to my father quite passionately that the only way my life was going to work and that the only way I was ever going to be happy was if he got me this red fire truck that shot water from it. And he got it after making me pay for it by doing some chores. So I had this red fire truck that shot water, and I was convinced that my life was now perfect. Well, you need to know it doesn't work for me today. The fire truck does not make me happy. In fact... The things in my life today has, have very little, almost nothing to do with the quality of my life. So in the path of the spiritual training or practices, the first thing you need to come to look at, need to face, 
is how you measure the quality of your life. And again, if you're willing to be honest, you will notice that what I just said to you is true. We often talk about our life and its quality and its value from the place of the content of our life, the effect. So one of the ways in which <coughs> we talk about this in Zen, because as you know, Buddhism talks a lot about cause and effect. And one of the ways we talk about this in Zen is that when you are living at the effect of life, you are living in the domain of impermanence. The, the stuff in your life, the people in your life, the things in your life that you are convinced at any given moment will make you happy, will make you happy. But you need to also remember for a while. And then that will change. So when we live our lives from a place whereby we again <coughs> measure our happiness, our fulfillment, and our satisfaction according to the circumstances and situations of our life, we set ourselves up for suffering or suffering compounds. Enlightenment, or what is often referred to as enlightenment, is actually a shift whereby the being's consciousness shifts from living their life in the effect of life to the cause of life. And by cause, another word that I've used over these years teaching about this, has to do with what, we, what I call responsibility. Now one of the things that we are very careful about, we teachers, when talking, is, is we are consciously aware of how semantics is always a problem. And this word responsibility, again, like so many other powerful words in the English language, has been perverted to mean many things. So let me tell you what it doesn't mean when I use it. It doesn't mean blame. It doesn't mean shame. It doesn't mean fault. It doesn't mean any of that. I cannot make you responsible. You cannot make me responsible. Responsibility in the context of Zen spirituality has to do with that moment in the person's life, in your life, when you come here and you listen to these teachings and you have this moment where you make up your mind, I am ready now to be responsible, to experience myself as the cause of everything in my life. As the cause of everything in my life. And again, when most people hear that initially, they get offended, they get stuck with that, they get defensive. And again, when you listen to what I said a moment ago, true responsibility has nothing to do with blame, shame, guilt, fear, fault, or any of that. It has to do with me finally waking up, as the Buddha did 2,500 years ago. On that historic day, he stopped looking for the solutions to his discontentment in the world, in other teachers and other schools and, and the world itself, and decided to just sit down and meditate until he found it within himself. That's another way of saying that he decided to be the cause of his enlightenment, the cause of his liberation. And the quality of his commitment to that was described in the fact that he said, once I take this posture... Once I sit here and meditate, one of two things are going to happen. I'm either going to wake up or I'm going to die. 
because I'm not going to move from this position until that happens. And that's a quality of commitment most people don't have the courage to do. But I'm going to tell you something, if not already, that will upset you. And that is, without that, nothing changes. Nothing changes. So that's the level of commitment required, because until I am willing to be responsible for my own happiness, my own fulfillment, my own contentment, until I am willing to be responsible, there is this delusion you know, that, that dictates and controls, and I find myself constantly at the effect of the stuff in my life. So I want you to take a moment and just consider what I said before I go any further. And take a look at your life, and you don't have to tell me, you don't have to tell the person next to you. You can keep it secret. I already know it, okay? <laughs> and that is, how much of your life, how much of your day you, is measured by you, by what happened to you today? By the weather? You know? By something someone said to you? By your emotions and your feelings, which are also impermanent? And have absolutely nothing to do with you. you know? By maybe how you were sick today or not sick. We begin by becoming authentic about our own inauthenticity. Most of our life is not our own. Most of our life, again, <coughs> is a reaction to the stuff in our life. The things in our life. If you uh, don't already get the newsletter or visit uh, our page on Facebook, uh, you probably did not read my last blog. And it, ha it was a, about an experience I had three weeks ago when a small virus knocked me on my butt and almost killed me. Okay? And I talk about <coughs> my experience in the emergency room at Cooper Hospital in Camden. And I talk about how in pain I was. I was in convulsions. I was going through convulsions. I couldn't stop shaking. And then what followed after that was I was so weak I couldn't sit up in the chair. And when that happens to you, if it's happened to you, you know what I mean. Or even if we get the flu, whenever we feel sickly, the mind goes to this very small place. And it's a place of survival. And the thoughts that the mind generates while you're in that place, is, as it was for me, I'm the only one sick, even though the emergency room was packed. I'm sicker than everybody else, even though there were people bleeding and being rushed to the OR. Um, uh, nobody cares about me because they're not coming over to take care of me. All of that goes on. And <coughs> I write about how I decided to uh, wake up. And it was literally like that for me. I was bent over in the wheelchair, feeling just rotten, and, and I said, I'm going to wake up. And I, at that moment, was able to sit up, and I decided that I was going to insert into that environment, rather than being uh, at the effect of that environment, and at the effect of what was going on in my body, I was going to insert uh, the context for which I was going to be there. I was going to be the monk that I was, and immediately I decided that, that I was going to recite my vows, which I did within me, and be those vows. And so at that moment, I found the energy and the strength to be gracious, to be grateful, uh, to be kind, 
and to be considerate about the other people in that room who were sick also. And even though I was not, the, it wasn't over for me. I was, you know, in there for two, three days, <coughs> and still I'm dealing with it. Um, thing, it had the whole experience of it had changed for me. And one of the reasons it had changed for me was that I was in my life. I was in the present. I wasn't caught in this story that is about living at the effect. You know, when you live at the effect, there's this story that runs in your head about the stuff and about the things that happen. But when you choose to wake up and you choose to insert yourself into the present, into the now, at that place, the story drops away, and you do get to choose how you're going to take this ride, how you're going to be on the ride. And that's the difference. That is what we mean about being spiritual. So there is a saying in Zen, you don't get to keep your precepts only when things are good. Okay? And I remember the old man in Tokyo saying to me, everything is spirituality. Everything we do has to do with spirituality or being spiritual, as we call it in the West. Everything. How we say hello to each other. How we say goodbye. How we listen. How we, you know, how the supermarket person handles the stuff you just paid money for. And by the way they handle it, you get a real sense they appreciate you as a customer. Everything matters. And that is what it really means to be spiritual. And when we have the courage to live our lives at that level, there's a shift that takes place in our consciousness where we move from, as George Bernard Shaw described it, living our lives as a little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making us happy, to being the cause for our happiness, to being the cause for our well-being. So I'm going to take a moment to take a drink of water because my mouth is drying up and give you an opportunity to ask questions. And then I'm going to explain to you why I just said all that. Any questions? Now, if my head monk was here, he'd be looking over at me and going, Next month, I'm doing a seminar on relationships. I oh, remember okay. that. Well, it's not to come back. Right, okay, but go ahead. No, just because, in, um, you know, if everything is impermanent and, you know, this thing of connection and compassion <coughs> could derive a lot of happiness or contentment from the relationships that you have around you. I'm sorry, that, back up and say that again. If everything is impermanent. Yes, yeah, so I'm just wondering how relationships would fit into that kind of the cause and the, and the stuff. <coughs> Of your life. Yeah, yeah. So my, my answer to that is is that relationships, how we normally do it, don't work. That's why people come to the seminar. Okay, <laughs> that's why people see counselors. That's why people are always talking about their relationships. Okay. So again, I need to go back to context. In the context of what I call, and I've been delivering this seminar now for about twenty years. It's called Creating Sustainable and Fulfilling Relationships. And when we, in, on that particular day, when we explore the sustainable part of it, we talk about sustainability, okay? 
what defines something as sustainable. And again, when we look at the way most people do relationships, there is no way that's sustainable. Okay? There is no way. You know, it's kind of like one of the things that I asked the group to do in the, in the seminar is to look at their definition of if you loved me. Okay? And again, after doing that for 20 years, talking about that, I often tell people that most people's definition of being loved is impossible for anyone to keep or to meet. Okay? It's impossible. So in order for anything to be sustainable, the definition must allow for, okay? It must allow for. And one of the problems with definition or defining relationships is that the moment you define them, the definition of to define is to fix the limits. You place it into this little box, you set up these expectations, and again, the relationship becomes not about the other person and the other person about the other person, but about the expectations. Okay? Now we're no longer in relationship with each other. Do you see that? See, I started out wanting to be in relationship with you. And then as time goes on, we find ourselves not in relationship, relating to and each of us doing our part to sustain and to fulfill that objective, that goal, that purpose for relationship. Okay? But now it's about our expectations and making sure you follow them. You see? Yeah. And, that's, and that's the problem with relationships for most people. Okay? So in order, for, their, in order <coughs> for relationships to be sustainable, Okay, and fulfilling, I need to stay true to the original purpose of the relationship. And the original purpose of any relationship is I love you, or to be in relationship with you. And when we move from being in relationship with each other to the stuff about the relationship, suffering compounds. Okay, so the way we normally think about relationships is we go looking for someone to fulfill us and they go looking for us to fulfill them and the problem with that is I can't fulfill you and you can't fulfill me it's impossible <coughs> impossible and one of the reasons for that is that your experience that you are experiencing from moment to moment is so unique so unlike any other experience that I cannot help you with that. So there's a reason why the two solid rings that are used in the ceremony are two solid complete rings. We bring our when we bring our own wholeness to the relationship, we have a better possibility of sustainability and fulfillment. But when we start to look toward the other person, you know, to fix us, uh, to make us whole. That's when the problems. Now, you can take that back to what I have been saying so far tonight. When I look for the content of my life to make me happy, there will be suffering. <coughs> my happiness, your happiness, my fulfillment must come from something other than, again, in relationships, the other person, and must come from something other than the stuff in my life, if it's going to be sustainable and fulfilling. Help?
Yeah. Okay. Did you like that? I didn't think so. <laughs> you know, I don't know is another way of saying nicely. No, I didn't like that. <laughs> can't, can't, con, can't con me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Anyone else? Hey, kid. Thank you. <laughs> Except sometimes. You spoke about uh, just the facts, ma'am. Just trying to live at the level of just the facts we generally have all these stories running around in our heads, and Lord knows I do. Um, Me how too. do we know when we reach the facts? How do we know those facts are not just another story that we're telling ourselves? You know, you, like everyone else, ask the same question in different ways. I know. So you asked that question the other day. I did. Okay? So you're just asking differently. I'm going to give you the same answer. And the Maybe same answer is, <laughs> the primary evidence of different, but the primary evidence to the answer to your question is that fear is absent in that moment. That's how you know. When you're dealing with just, there's a reason why they say, just the facts, ma'am. Because the opposite of that is the drama, the emotions. The story, as you heard me teach it a whole day with you twice so far, okay, and third, one more time next time, okay, which is good. I want you to keep coming back until you get it. I want everybody in here to keep coming back until they get it, okay, is that the suffering and discontentment in my life, if you were to ask me, Roshi, where is that? I would tell you it's always in the same place. It's in the story I tell you about my life, okay? So, and, and what is true about the story you've heard me say? It is at best a fictitious account of your past or of even what's going on in the moment. At worst, a complete lie. Okay? When you understand, again, as you've been training in, how the mind is operating from moment to moment and how, as Aldous Huxley said, experience the stuff we talk about is never what really happened to us. It's what we do with what happened to us. So the story, and most people live their life as a story, as the story they tell. I ask you who you are when we first meet, you start to tell me a story. And the story has actors and players and villains and saints and demons and angels and good days and bad days. You know, 10,000 stories in the naked city filled with sound and fury, signifying nothing, okay? So what is always in the story is fear, you know? Even when we're having, even when we're at the good part of the story, we live the good part and we talk about the good part, fearful of it changing, okay? So when it gets good, back to relationships, the way most people do it, when it gets good, like the honeymoon, you know, I tell people love shows up after the honeymoon, okay? So the honeymoon and everything that led up to the honeymoon, it's nothing but good, okay? And then what we do is we try to keep it that way, you see? And we say, this is it. And now you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives together ensuring it stays like this, you see? And then one morning... Consciously or unconsciously, one of them wake up, come downstairs, and looks entirely different than they did in the story the night before. 
and all hell breaks loose. Okay, and it breaks loose by what shows up? Fear. Something's wrong. The stuff in our life doesn't mean something's wrong. The feelings in our body doesn't mean something's wrong necessarily. This is why we go to the doctor. We feel bad, we go to the doctor, the doctor says, well, let me look at those feelings and see what the facts are in your body. Ah, oh, yes, you're sick, or, nah, just in your head, okay? But we don't do that work for ourselves. We immediately assume that just because we're feeling down, or just because they acted in a certain way and we're feeling down about that, something's wrong with the relationship. No, it just means... I'm t- I didn't get enough sleep last night, you know? You know, maybe that. Who knows? So what is always absent when it is just the facts and when I am dealing with my life from that fate, place, which is context, is fear isn't present. And fear is another illusion of the mind. You know, what did Roosevelt say? We have nothing to fear but fear itself. For a reason he said that. Because fear is delusional. There's no reason. There's nothing to be afraid of. In the, in the reality of this, you live your life wonderful, you do all the right things, you gain all that wealth and all that security, you die. You do all the wrong things, you, you're broke, you have nothing, you're unsafe, you're homeless, you die. In that reality, what, what are you afraid of? In the end... You're all going to the same place. I tell people, life is waiting for the bus. And every one of those buses is, a, is heading to the same place. <coughs> the end of the ride is the cemetery. No matter how well or how bad you've done it. What are you afraid of? You see? So fear is an optical delusion. Now, of course, we're talking about fear in the way the Buddha talked about suffering. He talked about the two kinds of suffering. The suffering he wanted to resolve and understand was what he called dukkha, which was also the word for cow dung left in the streets. And that's the suffering that we experience where the fear shows up. You know? So when dealing with fear, as you've learned in the seminars you've been to, <coughs> part of the process has to do with how do I know that to be true? How do I know that what I'm afraid of is really going to hurt me? You know what I'm saying? Is it a real you know, threat or a perceived threat? And if you don't know the difference between the two, there will be suffering. Okay? Thank you. Did you like that? <laughs> I still don't get it. Okay. But I'm working on it. That means you didn't like it. <laughs> Any, anyone else? Okay. Oh, was there somebody? Yes, hi. Yeah, um, things are impermanent, and people and objects and animals are impermanent, but we get a lot of joy. Like, I have animals. I get a lot of joy from being around them. Me too. The fact that they're impermanent, that shouldn't take away the joy. No one's saying that. The problem is is that we can experience that joy, no matter the circumstances or situation, okay, when our being joyful is not a function of what's going on in that moment, okay? So, yes, 
So in Zen, there's a saying, when you're joyful, be joyful. But when you examine most people's joy, somewhere in there, when, in their story about it is, but I hope it doesn't change. And that piece of the story is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the joy we get out of life. I get a lot of joy too. We've always had animals here at the monastery. You might hear my beagle on the far end barking. Okay? There was a time we've had six dogs and three cats living in this house. Okay, now we have one dog and two, uh, two cats, but this is a secret. I don't want my seven-year-old to get it. There's another one coming in a couple of weeks. <laughs> right? So, and recently I had to let go of my 15-year-old baby, my Jack Russell, which was my baby when I got her, and so forth. So I understand what you're saying. What we're talking about is, yes, that is true. And... And the problem is, is that when we examine our being happy when we're happy, there's a problem with that, because what's also there is our fear of not being happy, of this changing. When you get that it's going to change no matter what, you can learn how to be happy or at least content even when it changes. Even when it changes. So most of us are happy only when the circumstances in our life defines happiness for us. Okay? That's what we're talking about. All right? Thank you. You just said that you should be happy even when it changes. Mm -mm. No, you didn't say that. No, I didn't. Don't put words in my mouth. I said... Well, what did I hear? I said, <laughs> when you're happy, be happy. And if you can learn to not be happy when you're not happy, there is, a, there is a kind of contentment or happiness there that rises out of that training, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment, that is far more profound than just happy or sad. I'm trying to put that in the context of what happened yesterday and being happy and unhappy, and there's nothing that one can do until four years from now to change that. Mm -hmm. So so your job for the next four years is to learn how to be content with the stuff you can't change. So there's a saying in Zen, when you can't change something, change your attitude. So you shouldn't try to change anything? No, I didn't say that. No. Well, I said, you when you can't change something, when you can't. when you can't change it, when there's nothing you can do, mm. and there's nothing you can do for the next four years, okay, to change what happened yesterday. You need to change your attitude about what happened yesterday and find your contentment there. It doesn't mean you agree. It doesn't mean you like. But we're back to where I started. The reason why this is so difficult to get is that what I'm talking about will not work in the conventional paradigm or context for happiness. My happiness for the next four years I have chosen, just as I have chosen for the last 50-some years, okay, I've been a monk for 42, so I started 10 years prior to that when I declared that my happiness was not going to be a function of the stuff in my life. Okay? 
So when my happiness as an American citizen is dependent upon who's in the White House, I'm in trouble. Okay? I'm an uh, Abraham Lincoln nut. I, I've read everything I can about Lincoln, and those of you who have been here on occasion have heard me talk about this. Uh, my life, my, my whole experience of what I just said uh, to Arnold there was brought to the surface profoundly when I was reading one of my various books about uh, Mr. Lincoln and discovered that he was manic depressant and bipolar and had a wife who was also mentally ill, had to save the Union during the greatest domestic war we've ever experienced in history. And he did it. How was that possible? Most of us wake up in the morning depressed about something our girlfriend or boyfriend said the night before, and we can't even get in the car to drive. <laughs> this guy saved the Union, freed the slaves, held it all together, including himself, even though at a time they did not know anything about manic depression and bipolar, or had any kind of medicine for it to even help him, and he still did it. And when you read much of his memoirs, you get it has to do with his attitude. He had an attitude that was authentic, that was about his choice to be who he was going to be in his life, rather than measuring the quality of life by what was going on around him. <coughs> and when you know the history of what he had to contend with with the Congress then, and his own cabinet, and so forth. It's an amazing life that was lived, but a perfect example about what I'm talking about. There is a way of being whereby one can know contentment and fulfillment despite the circumstances and situations in your life. But it will take courage to change the way we do it in order to know that way of being. And, that, and, and part of the problem here, again, for some people hearing this and trying to make it jive for them, has to do with what I started out with. I told you, if you try to fit this into the conventional paradigm for living and spirituality, it won't work for you. It can't work. And every single historical religious leader from, we'll go to Moses, to the prophets, to Jesus, the Buddha, all of these characters all said the same thing. The way you do it is not going to work. It's not going to work. You have to be willing to die to this false self and awaken to your true self and be that in the world. So again, I told you a moment ago when, we, when I <coughs> stopped to take a drink and opened to questions, that after I finished taking your questions, I was going to tell you why I told you all this. And that's why I told you all this, because what we're going to talk about the remainder of the evening, if you think this doesn't make sense, the rest of it isn't going to make sense. Because the rest of it is the teachings of the masters in the context of cause, rather than the content, context of, rather than effect or content. <coughs> Any other questions? Why do most people Whoa. Hi. Hi. <laughs>
So why do most people fail? <laughs> um, I think most yeah, people. I can sit here tonight and say, "Oh yeah, I want to die this old life, <coughs> this new way." Uh huh. Really most people it. fail because they don't really mean that. Most people fail because they don't really mean that, and because they are sincere, but the nature of that declaration still comes from a very egocentric, uh, you know, source. Okay. See, one of the things that I've been inferring in in my readings, the writings that I've been sharing with you, and everything else, is it's also about something larger than what happened yesterday. You know, thousands of people are upset about, millions of people are upset about what happened yesterday. God hasn't said a word about it yet. And I wouldn't hold your breath. She doesn't really care. You know? And how do I know that? Because she told me. (laughs) I don't really care. This is is like a, a, a release of gas in the wind. That's all it is. It's a moment in history. You know how many times we've been here, she said to me. You know how many times we've been here? And that goes to your question that you asked. Why are we still here? Why do we keep coming back to this place? Because we really don't want to be reborn. We don't want to be enlightened. Heck, if that Zendo's too cold, people say, I can't come and get enlightened in that. <laughs> or if it rains outside, and it's raining, I can't get there. <laughs> the uh, New Yorker had this one. That we do want it. We, we think we want it. We believe we want it. Right. And, you know, right. Right. is that because we really need to belong to a Sangha? Is it really? No, I think we really want, want it. I think deep down inside we all want it. It's, it's our nature to want to be free because that's what we're talking about. But we need to understand that we need to change the way we go about doing that. If we do it the way we've done everything else in our life up until date, which is, you know, how many of us are committed to lose weight? (laughs) To exercise more. We really mean it when we say it. We're not lying. There are no liars. There's only ego delusion. (coughs) So (coughs) the Buddha Dharma teaches that to date I have this habitual way of living my life. If I use that paradigm to change my life, it's not going to work. Einstein said the same thing. He said, the mind which created the problem will be insufficient for creating the solution. So we need a new mind, we need a new attitude, we need a new way of approaching it. And great teachers like Pema Chodron talks about it this way. She says, until you do away with all escape routes, okay, nothing will change. Why? Because if we have an excuse as to why we can't, we will take that excuse. But that's how we've learned it. I mean, from the time we were children, we learned excuses work. We didn't want to take the test tomorrow in school. We created sickness in our body. And we're still doing it. Some people are sick all the time to avoid life. You know what I'm saying? 
So we need to take a look at that way of living. That's why Zen, I defined it as a way of being in the world, which is different than the way we normally are. So again, Chogyam Trungpa says this in his book, Cutting Through Spiritual uh, Materialism. Excuse me. I love it. I just did this for you. I put this in here. You're allowed to take a look at any of these books and even borrow them, as long as you tell me you borrow them, but stay away from my collection down here. <laughs> ah, look, Chogyam Trungpa's book. Let's see what he says. Hmm. It's on the very first page of the first chapter of his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. We have come here to learn about spirituality. I trust the genuine quality of this search, but we must question its nature. The problem is that ego can convert anything to its own use, even spirituality. Okay. So again, one of the problems with the uh, mass presentation of meditation and mindfulness in our society today is that for most people it works sometimes. And the reason why it only works sometimes is that that piece of understanding how the mind operates, apart from understanding how the mind operates from moment to moment, and seeing that for yourself, that it is a habitual mechanism that has its own singular and exclusive design purpose, which has nothing to do with, I want to wake up. Okay? Or as Chogyam says, even if it does, if we haven't conquered living habitually, as we have in the past up until now, ego takes even spirituality and uses it for its own benefit. So most people's declaration, I want to awake, is egocentric. Okay? They're doing it for this reason or that reason. So Pema Chodron says, the only way to achieve this, to get to that place where things start to change and you feel it and now you want to keep going? See, that's the problem. It's always in the first quarter of the journey that people quit. And if you talk to trainers, they'll tell you the same thing. If I can keep you at it long enough to where you feel the change and you experience it for yourself, then I can't stop you. Okay? And it's, it's also true in spirituality. So I often say to my students, you know that line you keep coming up against and retreating from every single time? Your enlightenment is right on the other side. Just stay there. Just, just keep going. Keep going. But what Pema warns us of is that if we have a reason why I can't, we'll take it. We'll take that reason. So I often talk about how my father grew up in a town where they never locked the doors. And there was no such thing as written contracts between the, you know, the contractor and the homeowner. He said a man's word was his bond. That's what he told me. And later on when I reflected about that and today, I said today a man's word is equal to his excuses. So when you are talking to someone, back to about relationships, and I talk about this in the relationship seminar, when they're sitting with you in that first state and telling you all about themselves and telling you about what they would do if you pick them, listen for their excuses. Okay? And if they have more than two excuses, and the two excuses that they can have is, 
I'm paralyzed in bed and can't get out of it, or I'm dead. Don't get into a relationship with them. Okay? So we really have to be willing to do this at that level. And you know what? This is another thing I need to warn you about. You're never going to get there. There is nothing that's going to happen in your life that hasn't already happened in your life. And when I look out here, as I've looked out over the many audiences' faces, tragedy has hit you people one time or another already. If that wouldn't do it, what do you think is going to do it? You know, it's kind of like when people are talking about this, this man at the White House. I, can't, I don't even want to say it. Okay? Well, let's wait and see. What are we waiting for to see? Okay? You know, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. Okay? So, uh, the other thing is, again, you're never going to get there. People say, well, when I'm ready. You know what? You're never going to be ready. It doesn't work that way. The mind does not get convinced. Or if it does, you know, something happens and we say, all right, I'm going to do it. And we do it, we do it, we do it, and we give it our all. And then we pipe out and what have you. So the only way to do it, the only way to start the journey and to keep the journey going is what I call Nike Buddhism. Anyone know what that is? Just do it. Every day, just do it. You wake up, the head starts saying, but just do it. Just do it. So I live the furthest end of this 3,600 square foot structure. And the Zendo is there. And I live here alone. And uh, at the uh, 5, 5.30 morning sitting, I need to get up in the wintertime around 3.30 in the morning. And so I'm up at 3.30 in the morning, and it is bitter cold, because I, up until this year, I have to confess, I told Ellen this last night, so I can't lie to you, she's right here, uh, I finally turned the temperature up high for the, to stay warm, but for, in years past, uh, <coughs> when I wasn't so, uh, you know, dealing with lungs and heart and all that stuff, uh, I liked it very cold, I would sleep under four blankets, and uh, so... When 3.30 came around in the, on a cold winter morning, uh, if a light was on, you could see the steam coming out of my mouth. And you need to know that when the alarm goes off, or usually now I get up that time whether the alarm goes off or not, the first thought in my head, the moment I move the blankets to get out of bed is, stay in bed. The second thought in my head is, stay in bed. The third thought in my head is, you can stay in bed. You're a Zen master. <laughs> and this goes on. The only thing that gets me out of that bed, I need to say to you, isn't because I want to be a good monk or the people depend on me <coughs> or you're a Zen master, is I just get out of bed. The only thing that works to get me out of that bed, out of that warm bed, is getting out of bed. Now you need to know I get out of bed and I go to the bathroom and I let my bee go out and my thoughts are, guess what? Get back in bed. <laughs> Nobody's going to come, which is true. We're, nobody ever comes in the mornings, okay? Once in a while, except sometimes. 
Nobody's going to come in the morning, and you're going to walk all the way down there and go into it. And that zendo, when you get there, is going to be like walking into a freezer and blah, blah, blah. Stay in bed. Go back to bed. And even my dog is looking at me from outside through the window of the door saying, I want to get back in bed. <laughs> all the way down that hallway, I tell people, into that zendo. You know when that conversation stops? When my butt is on my cushion and I begin to meditate. That's when it stops. Not until then. Now, I've been doing this for 42 years, and it's been that way, and it still is that way. So anybody who tells you, one day you will feel so excited about doing it, <laughs> doesn't work that way. That's why I love the Buddha. His first teaching was his very first teaching. Thousands of people had gathered in this park to hear this new teacher, the prophet, the great, the, the, the enlightened being. He climbs up on the platform, looks at them and says, Life is suffering. <laughs> now this was to a people that understood suffering. They knew what suffering you know, Oh yeah, tell us something new. You know what but why did he do that? He wanted us to understand that that's it. That's all you got to work with. The rest is up to you. And again, Nike Buddhism is the way. So what we're going to talk about in a few minutes after we take a very short break and very sure because time is running and it's merciless and everything's impermanent and I could die before I get this out. <laughs> or you could die. And you need to know that the monks are taught that if you do die, we pick up your body, put you outside and find out somebody to call and come and get you. Because the show must go on. So uh, <clears throat> when we come back, we're going to take a look at just doing it the way that the masters have done it. Now again, as I said, this will not work in the domain of excuses. It will not work if you have escape routes. It will only work when you make up your mind you're going to keep doing this until you get beyond that line. When you get beyond that line, you know, the Buddha kind of like said, there is a guarantee to he or she who takes the journey, but not to he or she who keeps getting off the boat, you're saying. So just do it is the context we're going to need to understand the rest of this information for tonight. So we'll take a break, as I said, and then come back to that. Thank you. <coughs> so there are four vows in which anyone, whether they be an, a monk or a layperson, recites in Zen, who choose to enter the stream of the Buddha Dharma. And these vows are recited throughout the world in every Zendo and Zen monastery. And when you take a look at these vows, and I will recite them for you in a moment, they all have something in common. And the thing they have in common is that they are impossible to keep. <coughs> and they are written that way purposefully by the Masters. And the first vow is, sentient beings are innumerable. I vow to love them all. Now, some translations are, I vow to save them all. The second vow is, desiring and craving is inexhaustible. I vow to extinguish all desires and all cravings. The third is, Dharma teachings, Dharma phenomena, reality is immeasurable. 
But I vow to master each of the teachings, to master my understanding of reality, or some might say the universe. <coughs> and last but not least, the vow is the Buddha way, the way of the Buddhas, the way of the enlightened beings, is endless. I vow to follow it. So each of the vows, again, when you examine them and study them in the manner that we do as a kind of meditative training, <coughs> are almost impossible to keep. It is impossible to love everyone. I often say to people, I've dedicated my life to compassion, and yet there are days I must muster up all the compassion in the universe for some people. And I do. Okay? And I do. Except sometimes. <laughs> so. Desiring and craving is endless. It doesn't matter whether you are a monk, a nun, a holy man, a yogi. Desiring and craving is part of the human experience. And yet the vow states that I will extinguish each one. So ultimately, the keeping of these vows has to do with, again, living in a way in the world that has to do with being, just for the sake of being, rather than the way we normally do it, which is about doing in order to have. What is true about all of us, the Buddha declared 2,500 years ago, is that your real identity, your true person, who you truly are, your true nature, <coughs> is enlightened. All beings, everyone in this room, without exception, whether you've ever been spiritual before or not, whether you've committed a million sins or not, whether you've lived a holy life or not, whether you, you, it doesn't matter. All beings, he said, are Buddha. All beings are enlightened beings, that we are possessed with a nature of enlightenment. We have within us, back to Judy's question earlier, all the means to do this, if we know how. So when the Buddha was asked about what was, what was it about for him living this way, he said, I'm only interested in skillfulness. He said, I'm interested in how to live in a reality that is impermanent, that is ever-changing. How to relive in a reality that is marked by suffering, <coughs> and so forth. So skillfulness is really what spiritual practice or training is about. And again, back to Judy and my exchange, that's what's lacking in most people's efforts. They don't train. They meditate when they feel unhappy, and maybe tomorrow they don't meditate because they're happy tomorrow. Or they, do, they go to yoga to feel better or to lose weight or to get the perfect body. And, ha and that has absolutely nothing to do and one of my uh, closest friends over the years was the founder of Kripala. And Desai and I were together on a retreat he was giving, and we were having tea again over the discussion of meditation and yoga in America. And at one point he put down his teacup and he said, You know, Roshi, the yoga here in America is not the yoga of India. It's not the yoga of the yogis and yoginis in India. And uh, I said, Well, you know, Desai... Uh, the meditation in America is not the meditation of the Buddha and the ancients, you're saying. 
So back to, again, Chogyam Trungpa's book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, he addresses that, again, if I'm doing anything, whether it's spirituality, for a reason, I've already set myself up for failure or temporary success, you're saying. So spirituality has to do with about being in the world. In the, in the domain of relationships, sustainable and fulfilling relationships, we need to learn how to love other just for the sake of loving other and no other reason. When I'm loving you, only when you're loving me, what merit is there in that? You know saying? Or again, as I mentioned earlier, I often remind my monks and students, you don't get to keep the precepts only when things are good. You know, saying. Another way of me saying that is that in times of tragedy and trouble, as I have experienced, and as currently is the story I shared with you earlier, this is when training pays off, I tell people. And that was my, one of my first thoughts. This is when all these years of being a monk is going to pay off for me now, to meet this head on. And I said that to myself in 2012 when I had two heart attacks, and I almost died from pneumonia a few years after that, and so forth. What got me through that, and more than just through that, is training. And if you're not prepared to train, which includes, as I said earlier, an understanding of how the mind is operating from moment to moment, because your mind, my mind, and we will say it that way just for the sake of the conversation, is operating right now, and you're not even aware of it, you're saying. It has its own agenda. It has its own design function. So it goes, at least it makes sense to me, that to understand what it's up to from moment to moment is helpful, you know saying, and allows for developing skillfulness. So again, back to Judy and I earlier in our sharing, the reason why most people don't complete is that they don't develop the skills to do so. And that is why I rejected in this monastery, in the Zen society years ago, the use of the term practice. This isn't practice. This is training, you're saying. And in the same way that an athlete, a gold medal athlete, a champion athlete, in whatever you know, sport we're talking about, trains, uh, it takes consistency, regularity, and an understanding of how your body is operating, or in this case, how your mind is operating. And most of us take not only our minds, but of course our bodies for granted until something happens. You know, we don't think about, am I prepared to be in a relationship with this person for the rest of my life at the time we decide to do that, do we? No, we don't think about that. And, and again, there is, a, there is millions of loving relationships that end in failure, not because love was lacking, but because they lack the skills to relate, you know saying? To relate. One of the things you explore in the seminar next month is that there's always three parties in every relationship. There's you, there's them, and there's the relationship. And each party must be considered and attended to, you know saying? And the thing we usually keep out is one or more of, the, of those three people in that relationship. <clears throat> So, to, tonight I want to talk about three very powerful teachings 
and powerful, skillful means. That again, <laughs> forgive me, <laughs> will not work <laughs> if you measure them. Okay? They will not work if you try to figure them out in the context of the way we normally do. Um, you know, <coughs> my head monk who's not here, we've often had the same conversation about this word faith. And <coughs> over the years when I've addressed it before various different audiences, especially when I've been with my friend who's a Catholic deacon and one of our newest uh, members here who's I've known for 20-some years, he's a rabbi. And so I often talk about this word faith, <coughs> that when most people use it, uh, they are referring to what they believe uh, or their affiliation. But when people like the prophets and Jesus and Moses and Buddha use the term faith, that wasn't what they were talking about. In fact, those of you who don't know about Buddhism, we have no religious doctrine. We have no dogma that you're required to believe in. And that is why your religion doesn't matter in, in engaging Zen. You can practice Zen Buddhism, train in it <coughs> as a Catholic, as a Jewish person, as an agnostic, as an atheist. None of that, you know, there's no conflict there. So this word faith means something different than what I believe. And this word faith, as they lived it and trained their students in it, has to do with what we've been talking about and I've repeatedly said all night. It has to do with being in the world in a way to which there is no ground for that being. Like, I can't convince you, obviously, what I'm talking about. I can't bring you something and say, you should have known this guy, okay? Because this guy is still here. This guy is still alive today. And if it wasn't for this guy, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. And <coughs> I can't say to you, here's the proof over here. And here it is. So there you go. Now you got proof, you're saying. So by faith, we mean, again, the first step in order to apply these three skills that I'm going to talk to you about now requires, again, a willingness on your part without any evidence, without any promise of success to just do it and to keep doing it until it works. Because on the path, as I said a moment ago, I often say to my students, ego or selfishness got you through those doors, got you here, but it will not keep you here. It will not keep you here. Ego got you here. So the old me, if you want to call, call it that way, the, the sinner, you know, the, the, and everything else, uh, got me here, got me into these rooms, got me to this life, and so forth. So Jung talks about the shadow, you know, and how you need to understand the shadow because the shadow got you here. Or the light always comes out of the darkness, doesn't it? Or as the late, great Leonard Cohen wrote, we're all broken, but the crack is how the light gets in. So to do this, you can't measure it in any way. The moment you measure yourself, you know, when, whenever someone comes to me for private spiritual direction, they say to me, my, my, my practice is going good, Roshi. And I say to them, well, what does that mean? You say. 
And uh, I always like to tell the story of Suzuki Roshi, probably the greatest Japanese Zen master to ever touch the shores of the United States. He founded the San Francisco Zen Center back in the late 50s, early 60s. And uh, there's a story about <coughs> when one of his students doing Sashin, which is a seven-day, 24-hour-a-day meditation training we do annually. <coughs> so uh, throughout the training, the students get to individually go into this room apart from the Zendo, meet with the master, and work out their stuff. And on this particular occasion, this uh, student came in and, and you know, he said to the master, he said, this is Rishi, he said, I feel so blissful. I am so at peace, Roshi. I have seen so many lights while I've been meditating. I've even heard angels singing. And Roshi said to him, oh, don't worry, that'll pass. <laughs> and you know what the, the the what that was about was again the moment you set yourself up with a reason to do something the reason has you the reason becomes your master so i want to encourage you to muster up the courage and if you can't muster up the courage muster up the doubt all the doubt in the world the Zen masters you say, used to say, the first thing you have to do is muster up all the doubt in the world. And then do it. And then just do it. And that's how you practice these three tenets. The three tenets, or three pure precepts. Dogen Zenji says of the first tenet, or first pure precept, ceasing from doing harm is the abiding place of the precept of all Buddhas. The abiding place is the state of non-duality, of not knowing and non-separation. So, spiritual people like to talk a lot about we are all one, until Donald Trump becomes president. <laughs> <laughs> We are all one, except somehow there's a great mystery. I can't explain it except for that one, and so forth. So as I said earlier, this is where training pays off, and it is also where you find out what your training is really about. So in Zen, there's a lot of discussion in the texts and among the masters about duality and non-duality. So Dogen Zenji, who was the father of the Soto schools of Zen, the one of which I'm uh, part of, uh, <coughs> and set up the schools in Japan, says that the first tenet, the first pure precept, is the abiding place in the state of non-duality and not knowing and non-separation. The sixth ancestor of Zen defines <coughs> Zen meditation, or Zazen, as the state of mind in which there is no separation between subject and object, no place between you and me, up or down, right and wrong. So we can also call this precept returning to the one. So the first tenet, which is, you know, most people never get beyond this tenet, is the teaching meditate. Meditate 
meditate, meditate. If you want your life to change, you need to get to that place where you begin to intimately observe or examine your life and study it in meditation. But study it skillfully. And the skillfulness involved in the first precept or first tenet is to sit and look at your life from a totally, absolutely, positively, cannot be any other way, non-judgmental and non-critical space. You cannot, you cannot achieve wholeness and well-being from the dualistic uh, context of ego. Ego is always dualistic. It's always about good, bad, right, wrong, up, down, yesterday, tomorrow, and so forth. Ego is not the instrument for meditation. And most of us, again, come to meditation egocentrically, meditate egocentrically, because you talked to me, as I said a moment ago, about good meditation, bad meditation. There is no such thing. Zazen, which is part of the first tenet, the tenet being meditation, or Zen meditation, is a non-dualistic training. It involves dropping all duality and what the Japanese call shikantaza, just sit, just breathe, just observe. Non-judgmental, non-critical, you don't have a conversation about it this way or that way. It is a very difficult place to be in. This place where we don't know what's right and what's wrong. It is the place of just being, of life itself. All right and wrong, whether you have realized this for yourself now or not, whether you see it now or not, just the facts is all right and wrong is nothing more than a concept. There's nothing more than a concept. There is no evidence for all the right and wrong in our life, you say. And that there is something much larger, much deeper, much profound. And again, when I think of Jesus, he tried to teach us by saying, God sends the rain on the good and the bad. What's up with that? You see? I mean, Donald Trump's in the White House. If God didn't want that, don't you think that would have been different? But what if God doesn't want it and does want it, not even involved in that duality? Just so happens you put him there. <coughs> you know saying? Coming from a place of non-duality with your life and with life requires a willingness on your part right now, and the only way you do this is you make up your mind to do this, and you will need to train in doing this, which means you will need to be mindful of your thoughts, your words, and your actions going forward and catch yourself, I'll say it that way, every time you're ready to add your concept or opinion about right and wrong, good and bad, or anything else. What would, be, what would your relationships would be like? Listen now. Back to relationships. What would your relationships be like if both of you just stopped criticizing and just loved each other, just stopped expecting and just loved each other, what would your life be like? 
What would your life be like tomorrow morning if tonight when you go to bed, you make up your mind, you declare, you must declare this for yourself. You must make a declaration that tomorrow you're going to really, really love yourself unconditionally. The absence of all dualistic thought about you and operate as a Buddha, as a lover to yourself and to others. You can't do it. Right now I can hear your mind going, but what about right and wrong? What about it? We lined up all the wrong people over here and we lined up all the right people over here. Guess what they all have in common? They all are going to die. And death doesn't care how good you were. You know, I often tell people, I, I have this reoccurring dream that one night death came, came into my bedroom, you know, the, the cape and the sickle and the dark face and said, it is time. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you know I'm a Zen master? I help thousands of people. I said, I've got a whole trunk load of you. Get in. Okay. It doesn't care. So, what if you just stopped caring about all of that? Now, someone asked me the other night on Wednesday, well, if we stopped thinking, how could we do things? And I told her, <coughs> it's stupid to go through life half-assed no matter what cheek you're left with. So in Zen, it's never like either or. There is a time for thinking, but part of the training is recognizing when your thinking is a function of ego delusion. So a question that Nancy would ask me to follow up on that would be, how do I know that? I know that whenever it is critical or judgmental. Ego is always judging and criticizing. It's designed to do that. So how do I know that I need to <coughs> stop and pause before I say or act? If that word or action is being driven by a judgment or a criticism about the moment, stop it. Stop it. How many of us can say that we are open to all the ways of all lives? You know, we're all one, but don't bring that culture in this neighborhood. You see? How many of us can say that we don't have the answer? There's a biggie. I ask people, what is the most important thing in a human being's life? And obviously the first response is the same. Everybody says it. <coughs> Love. No, it isn't. When you take a look at human beings, the most important thing to most people is what? To be right. To be right. That's all you ever worry about. Am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? Am I, am I acting the right way? Am I right with these people? Do they accept me? Do they love me? What if I were to tell you that the power you're looking for in your life and the freedom you're looking for in your life has to do with making up your mind. I don't know. My teacher, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, one of my teachers, uh, that photograph back there of us was at a reception that was given in his honor. And 
people were coming up and I was hanging there next to him right after we were hugging each other. And uh, this woman came up with her daughter in a wheelchair. Her leg was broke and she was pregnant. So she, she wheeled her up to his holiness and they, you know, they bowed and what have you. And he was standing there and she said, holiness, my daughter is pregnant. And he said, I see. <laughs> uh, can you tell us what it's going to be? <laughs> and he looked at the girl and he looked at the mother and he looked back at the girl and he looked at the mother and he said, I don't know. <laughs> and this was the Dalai Lama. What do you mean you don't know? But he had no problem saying that. I don't know. Try it. The next time you think you have to have the answer, try it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. The most liberating thing you will probably do for yourself in your life is to give up having to know. Early on, I read to you Merton's words. Merton says, you do not need to know precisely what is happening or exactly where it is all going. It doesn't matter. You do not need to know that, he says. What you need is to recognize the possibility and challenges offered by this present moment and to embrace them with courage, faith, and hope. So what you need, he is saying, is to just be present to your life and be present to the life of those you love and be about the business of being present to them without judgment, without criticism, criticism being present to your life without always judging it and measuring it. A good life, bad life, good life, bad life, good life, bad life, bad life, good life. Oh my God. How do you hold that all together? I say, just give that up. How do I do it? You just do it. You just give it up. You just make up your mind tomorrow. I don't care anymore. <coughs> what I will care about though, what I will focus on is being in the world. And again, in the context of the Buddha Dharma, that means being loving kindness and compassion towards yourself and others unconditionally. When you are being that, you meet the first pure precept about doing no harm. About doing no harm. That is the first precept and the first tenet. How do we skillfully achieve that? By giving up having to be right and just be loving kindness for the sake of being loving kindness and just be compassion for the sake of being compassion. So while everybody else is choosing to be the opposite, you just keep being that. You just keep being that. When the other person in your relationship is choosing to be right, you don't go there. You refuse to go there. Mm -hmm. Do you know, Manny, you know how Gandhi defined his revolution? The revolution that brought down a whole nation, an empire... At that time, the greatest empire on the planet, the, the British Empire, you know how he did it, how he defined that? He said, here's how my revolution worked. Every single time the British soldiers chose to strike me with their sticks, I chose not to strike back. Period. That's how he defined his success. That's how he defined his success. The question for me is, what forms can we create in modern society that will be conducive to seeing the oneness of life? See, for most people, the oneness of everything exists as a concept. We can talk about it, we can say it, 
but we don't see it. We don't really see the unity of chaos, for example, and <coughs> when there is no chaos. But that unity exists. The yin and the yang of the universe is darkness and light. You cannot have one without the other. You see? And the only way we get to seeing the unity of everything is by allowing everything to be is by allowing everything to be. I was in a university talking to a bunch of students about this uh, on a different topic, <coughs> and I said to them, the most important thing you have to offer me is your happiness. So I'm going to do my damnedest to help you be happy. I'm not going to make you happy, but I'm going to help you be happy. And you know how I'm going to help you be happy? I'm going to let you be. And then you're going to be happy. And you know what you're going to do for me when you're happy? Because it's what you do when you're happy. You let me be. You see? You let me be. So I tell people that the most important thing you have to offer your relationship is your own happiness. And the way to get happy is to get out of the conversation that is dualistic. You are never, ever, ever going to find peace. My parents are conservative Republicans who voted for Donald Trump. Okay? Yes, I admit that. I am an alcoholic. No. <laughs> okay. I'm a child of an alcoholic. Okay. All right. So, <clears throat> they are never happy, except sometimes, and never peaceful, and, sh and struggle over every little thing. Well, all day, they watch Fox News, and they watch Judge Judy. And they watch all of those shows that is about criticizing and judging. And then they say, Lord, grant me peace. <laughs> Even God says in those moments, I can't help you. Turn off the television. Turn off the conversation of duality and watch what happens. So I hear it. I hear your brain again. Well, what about when we do fail or make mistakes? Clean up the mess. So what? So what? Christians who are listening out there, I tell you this all the time. You either believe he died for that already, or you don't. You can't have it both ways. You see? So when you mess up, you clean up the mess. That's all. You don't have to get dramatic about it. friend of mine who, who's, who's gay once said to me, you know, there is no such thing as a, as a straight boy. And he said, the world is filled with drama queens. <laughs> well, he was right. So eliminate the drama. Stay out of the conversation. And that will take training because we have habitually attached ourselves to the ego delusion that life is the story we tell. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I grew up, uh, a friend of mine I went to school with, his parents became very dear friends of mine. And um, Mr. Fitzgerald was an Archie Bunker type personality. Fantastic guy. And every night, uh, him and his wife would hold hands and sit on, here's a, here's a term for it, the Davenport. Everybody know what Davenport is, right? You sit on the Davenport and watch Walter Cronkite. And if you remember Walter Cronkite, those of you who lived that long, he ended up he ended all his news broadcasts with what? 
And that's the way it is. And Mr. Fitzgerald always said, no, it isn't, Walter. <laughs> and he used to say to me, remember, that's just a story. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Zen is a training, a personal practice that pushes us to realize what is really so. Would you let her out? I'll back. What is really so. Zazen, or Zen meditation, is a form of bearing witness to life, of bearing witness to the elimination of the denial of the oneness of our life. So when we sit and train in Zen meditation, we are training to eliminate in our consciousness our attachment to the duality of life in order to see the oneness of life. Our mistakes are as equally valuable as our successes. In fact, I tell people that the only time I ever learned anything was when I messed up. I never learned anything at the party when things are going good. I learned everything that I have learned in tragedy and failure. And if you're afraid of failure, you will never know real success. You will never know real success. Zazen is a form of bearing witness. As human beings, each one of us is denying something. What are you denying? There are certain aspects of life we do not want to deal with, usually because we are afraid of them. Sometimes it is society itself that is in denial. We've seen that. Zazen allows us to bear witness to all of life. That is the essence of the second pure precept, doing good. Dogen says, doing good, this is the Dharma, supreme enlightenment. This is the way of all beings. Bearing witness to things we are denying or that society is denying. Bearing witness to the things we don't want to deal with. This is the second precept. So, when we talk about the oneness of all things again, if we really mean that, then it means we can't scrap anything in our life, avoid or avert anything in our life. We need to treat the good times and the bad times with equanimity. We need to embrace the good times, which is easy, as our teacher, and the bad times, sometimes as the greater teacher, and so forth. And this is what it means by doing good. Doing good is making up your mind tonight that you're going to stop the denial game in whatever way you play it, in whatever form it manifests in you, whereby you avoid the stuff you don't want to face. So I often tell my students over the years, we can do this the long way or the short way. The short way is think about right now what you've been afraid of most in your life and go home tonight and do it. Go home tonight and do it. Because until you face that, and until you meet that, and treat that doing good to it, as the tenant goes, or the precept goes, uh, you will always be, it will always be your master. And it will always determine for you not only what you will experience, but what you are permitted to experience. Now you know where that last door is? <laughs> That's where you've got to put her. So she's going to eat the cat food. <laughs>
monks. It's tough training. Are you talking about the dogs or the Both. <laughs> the things that we are in denial about teach us. We don't go to them to teach them. We don't go to them to teach them. When we can listen, we can bear witness, and they teach us. They teach us. So all of that stress and anxiety, circumstance and situation that you've kind of like constructed your life in that perfect way to make sure it doesn't get through, you need to open the door and allow it to get through, and you need to shut up, be quiet, experience it, and learn from it. That's what you need to do. You need to give up the control and allow it to take you where you need to go. It is your teacher. What good is it if we just make ourselves more holy? What's the point? The point is to serve, to offer. More importantly, to be the offering. So the other night, again, someone else in the group asked me, tell me how meditation changes the world. Just meditating, just sitting on the cushion. And I said to her, <coughs> and I said to her what I've said in various other contexts. I can only give you what I have. And this might be another answer to you, Judy. I can only give what I have. So we say in Zen, quiet mind, quiet body. Quiet body, quiet environment. Quiet environment, peace on earth. So when my mind is quiet and I have achieved this inner peace within myself, my words and my actions will reflect that. And it is my words and my actions that come from that tranquility that changes the world. If I don't have the peace within me, then I have nothing to offer the world except the same stuff. You know, and I'm just causing suffering in the world. So again, the point is to not just be holy, what I, and by that Dogen is saying, your definition of holy. The point is to really be holiness, to train and achieve this for yourself. And the doing good, which is the second tenet or precept, will come naturally. You won't have to plan, you won't have to you know, come up with this construct of a purpose and a meaning and a cause. That's already been defined for you. It will come from, it will flow naturally. That is where you and by you, I mean those of you who still don't love yourself entirely, find out how just your presence is gift to the world. You won't, you won't have to go in and march with a flag and a poster and, and all of that. Just your presence. Your presence of loving kindness and compassion and tranquility and benevolence. Just your presence will change the world. Will change the world. You know, we're all out there trying to change the world, but we don't want to change ourselves. <laughs> now, what if we did that that way? What if we worked on changing ourselves? The world would naturally change, wouldn't it? See how simple that is? <clears throat> of itself, the fruit is born. So we don't have to worry about what to do if we cease from doing harm if we become the state of unknowing, if we become Zazen, the offering, offering will arise naturally. The fruit will be born. 
The question always comes up, how do we bring our Zen into our life? But Zen is life. What is there to bring? And into what? The point is to see life as the training field, the Zendo. Every aspect of our life has to become about the training. Every aspect of your life has to become about the training. So tomorrow night, I will be a parent. My daughter comes home and spends a week with me, and I will be parenting my daughter. But I will be parenting my daughter in the same way that I parent my students, in the same way that I parent myself, in the same way that I parent my animals that live with me, in the same way that I drive my car. It, all, it is all coming from the same source. I just am changing my clothes from time to time, and so forth. Until you are willing to make your life like the Japanese, spiritual, and spirituality is about your life, nothing changes. I was trained in a tradition, in a traditional monastic model whose forms are conducive for the state, to the state of not knowing. The question for me is, what forms can we create in modern society that will be conducive to seeing the oneness of life? And those are the three tenets which construct the form and the form in the end has, can be summarized in this way. Drop all the pretense. First pretense, you know. You don't know. No one can know anyone else's heart, so why are we judging anyone else's heart? You don't know. You can know your heart, and you can know that when you get quiet enough, you can hear that heart speaking. And that heart, when it speaks, is the same heart of a child. And when a child heart speak, when my daughter comes home tomorrow night, I know already that all the love I need in the universe will be right there. Because that's what children do. That's what they do. At least daughters to fathers, as far as I know. My experience. And so forth. Be about the business of being love. That's all that's necessary. Train in a way that you develop the skills to be about the business of being love in the most difficult times of your life. Because what does it profit a person to love only when times are good and only those who love you? Big deal. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I love tonight with you. Even if you didn't. <laughs> Any questions? Hello. Forgive me, Roshi, for <laughs> I'm not a priest. possibly asking Well, I am a priest, question. but not a Catholic priest. But go ahead. In what context did you mean that God doesn't care? In the context of when we give up the idea of God caring or not caring, we get to hear the thoughts of God. And that's what we really want. Einstein said it. He said, I desire only to know the thoughts of God. Everything else is simply details. So <laughs> it's kind of like most people make God in their own image. If we really wanted to see God's image, we need to be quiet. Okay? Another part of that has to do with what I just said, or said a few moments ago. God's already answered you. God's already answered you. What are you waiting for? You're saying? 
God created you with that enlightenment spirit that the Buddha talked about. You have within you right now and at any given moment everything you need to be everything you dream to be. Just do it. Did you like that? No, you didn't. God has concerns. <laughs> See, I told you you didn't like it. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> Thank you, Vince. Where's Liz? Is she up north? Is she okay? Liz? Oh, yeah. She's okay. exhausted. Yeah. So, if my head monk was here, he'd be saying, Roshi, hmm. uh, remember to tell them. So I must remember to tell you that if you're not already on our mailing list and you would like to receive the newsletter and other announcements, you can fill out a card that's in the office out there or at the, at the entrance where you came in and get on our mailing list and you will get a monthly newsletter and everything you need to know about what's going here. If you're not visited our website, it's pinewind.org and all the information there uh, will give you everything you need to know about participating, Chico. No did, did I miss anything? No uh, you you often tell me about sounds true and 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 I I think yeah you know, well, we, yes Roshi we have recordings that on iTunes and <coughs> SoundCloud for those who don't know okay and so to the website okay and next month uh, creating sustainable and fulfilling relationships February eighteenth sign up now do not hesitate because I only take a certain number of people for that. So run home, get your credit cards out, and register for that training. <laughs> you miss it, shame on you, and so forth. And I think there's another event next month, but you'll have to check it out because I can't remember. Second Saturday. Oh, yes, the second Saturday. <laughs> for those of you who can only try to be enlightened half a day, we have a half day sitting next month on the second Saturday. Uh, so it's the Zen Circle from 9 to noon, and you need to register for that. And if you really want to risk it, you can join the monks and I uh, in the afternoon where we go more in depth into the, in the training of Zen. But you're welcome to participate in at no additional cost. Did I cover everything? That's it? Thank you. Emya would be proud of you. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. It was a privilege to be with each of you tonight. Good night. Permit me to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Good night. Good night.